The best thing for me is in my life as a whole, I've had the most wonderful elders, you know, who have raised me. And that is what has kept me steady. I, that's why I was able to find myself because, of course, I had somewhere to return, somewhere more meaningful to return to. Welcome to I Am an Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, one of the approximately 9 million foreign-born people living here. I left Australia around 15 years ago to study in the UK. One thing led to another, and I stayed. This new season of the podcast has been commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. I'll be speaking with some of the artists whose work is programmed this year, and who also happen to be, you guessed it, immigrants. This week I'm chatting with Tawona Sitole. He was born in Zimbabwe just before independence and moved to the UK age 21. Like a lot of artists, he does a lot of things. Better known by his ancestral family name Ganyamatope, he is a poet, playwright, storyteller, musician, researcher and teacher. He is co-founder of Seeds of Thought, a non-funded arts group, and he is one of the writers of an immersive production called Muster Station Leith, which will be performed at the Edinburgh International Festival between August 15th and 26th. We talked about the expectations of success people have of you if you go overseas, how the legacy of colonisers in Zimbabwe still persists, and getting to grips with the Glaswegian accent. Enjoy. My name is Tawona Stole and I'm an immigrant. Hi, Tawona. How did you wake up this morning? I went to bed late because I work late at night. When the kids go to bed, I get to do a bit more work. My youngest daughter woke me up. Does she yeah. run into the room? Is that kind of Just what happened? on me and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's alarm these days. That's nice when that yeah. happens. My kids are not like that. We have to wake them up these days. And so have you had the heat wave in the Glasgow area where you are? Yeah, it's, it's been quite something. And I noticed that uh, the local people are, have a hard time with the heat. I mean, everyone wants it to be hot, but then it gets unbearable at times. You and I both come from hot countries. I'm kind of used to it, but, you know, this country is not made for heat. So what did you do on the hot days? Just stayed indoors? I got to cut the grass. <laughs> Has the grass gone yellow up there? Because here it's just yeah. completely yellow. It is, yeah. It's going yellow, yeah. You know, the garden gets neglected because you're just too busy. You keep looking at it going, I'm going to do it one day and then... Never do it. In our street, because we have a lot of pensioners, they have meticulous... They spend their time, like, making sure it looks good. You feel like you're letting... Letting the, the team down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tawana, how do you feel about the word immigrant? A lot of your work, your artistic and your academic work and how you've combined that over the years, you've, you've thought about this quite a bit... I mean, it feels sharper than other words that might be used for British people abroad. It is not something that I would embrace. I'm an incomer, maybe. Immigrant doesn't feel as comfortable because for me, one of the things that I have learned being here in the UK from Zimbabwe is that there is somewhat a despairing lack of mutuality. For example, you know, when I first arrived here, I was very enthusiastic. Oh, you know, British life, whatever. And then I'm with my peers and they hardly know anything about my home country. I don't expect everyone to have this, you know, wonderful knowledge of, but yeah, some of that lack of mutuality has been very, very present. It has made me do a lot of thinking. You've got settlers, people who came with guns and decimated and destituted, as Walter Binolo calls it, destituting other cultures. 
they were settlers. This is a very genteel or gentle word, right? And then in the modern term, they're expats. If they come to work, they're expatriates. I had lots of expatriate teachers in my high school. And then that is not the same way my story is described. I'm suddenly, I'm an immigrant, I'm a foreigner. I'm interested in this thing you were talking about where you said when you came here at the age of 21, you were, oh, British life, British culture. <laughs> this is exciting. I, let me explore. What do you remember of that time? It was very exciting. I also have a bone to pick with all those who made that journey before me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why? They didn't warn you. They didn't tell the truth at all. <laughs> no, I, I understand now. I understand why this is. The scenario goes like this, yeah. You leave home. There are so many way, reasons for leaving home. And uh, in Zimbabwe, we have a proverb that says, uh, new things are in your feet. You're expected as a young person to travel a little bit before you become something of a person. So you've got a bit of world experience of some kind. So people come here and then in Zimbabwe, we call it overseas. So-and-so went overseas. <laughs> And that's it still. Their life is perfect. You know, they have no problem. And then instead of there being some redress, when people end up in overseas, as it's called, instead of them saying, ah, actually life is quite tough. People don't do that. Why? Because the pressure of succeeding. I can't come home and say things are not going well. So we create this, uh, I don't know what to call it, this kind of stupid story that we end up playing uh, all these parts in. And once I've been here, I've the beauty of being here is having a different vantage point and mm -hmm. seeing things so clearly. This is one of the, the greatest experience for me is seeing things much, much more clearly. People, when they're going back home, it's like a big thing. Oh, let me buy some new clothes. Let me do this, do this. They get to Zim and they walk around, you know, they have to somehow perform this overseas narrative. Their clothes have to be better than, I can't wear the same clothes as the local. I have to show that I'm from overseas. It's just pressures that are there. They're not explicit, but they're there. And our parents are, don't help. Oh, so-and-so's daughter did this thing. So-and-so's son did that thing. So I always fight with my mom. <laughs> like, mom, I, I'm doing my own thing. One time, I'll tell you a funny story. One time I went out with my older brothers for a drink. And so we, we met some of their friends and we were drinking an hour or so into whatever it was. So one of my brother's friends said to him, you said your little brother is coming. When is he coming? He didn't know you were the brother because he was expecting some shiny yeah. new person to, to yeah. walk in with like a Rolex watch and a... <laughs> some shiny shoes. And so the fact that I was just kind of, I dressed down, I dressed the way I feel like. He thought he would just turn up and go, ah, okay, that's the guy. Okay. Which is what happens all the time. So how did you develop your individualized response? Because obviously there's pressure, as you were just describing, to present as the overseas person. But you were like, no. Where did that yeah. come from? The best thing for me is in my life as a whole, I've had the most wonderful elders who have raised me. And that is what has kept me yeah, steady. I, that's why I was able to find myself because, of course, I had somewhere to return, somewhere more meaningful to return to. And that is what it is. I sort of recognized myself. Colonization is misunderstood a lot because the colonizers themselves, they did a lot of foul stuff, but they left it in the hands of much more eager people. You will not believe that in Zimbabwe, you know, caning of school pupils. I think into law, it's only two years ago, so two or three years ago, but people were insistent on it. For example, in my school days, the head teacher would get sent three fresh canes every term. 
from the Ministry of Education to cane the kids. And it was like a, a done thing. And of course, the family conspired in that. Parents say, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because parents have this idea that they hand their kids to the school system. School system knows best for these kids. So those are some of the things that uh, we have taken on and entrenched even more than the, the people who colonized never even dreamed that it would be done at this level. You can look at so many things in our societies right now that we're really entrenched. Religion is another big thing. Where Christianity has been taken, my goodness, it's been pumped with some steroids and put in the gym. You don't like what it looks like now. <laughs> So as you say, I mean, you might have um, become independent in whatever it was 40 years ago, but there still remains this legacy and people who want to continue yeah. that legacy. It's huge. I think that's why for me, it's amazing. When I was saying to you, this is the, the best thing I think I have in my life is uh, having had a very profound grounding from my elders, just, you know, simple lessons about, you know, how I live my life. I live my life as everything I do should contribute something positive to other people, the collective, whatever that is, my community I live in or people I'm working with or the world at large. All these simple lessons, like never stop learning. My dad always says to me that go into every situation as a student. That's good advice. And be ready to, you know, we're talking right now. I should be in, in a poise of being able or willing or capable of changing an opinion I've held all my life in this conversation we're having right now. That's from people who are considered uneducated and illiterate and all those things by society as it was those times. So I, I really look at that. You know, I, I these two curricula running parallel to each other and they've brought me many gifts, both of them. But I also can critique and see what some of the ills are. Okay, let's go back to Zimbabwe when you were a child. Those years up until you're 21 and, and you left, how would you sum them up? Uh, the most wonderful times. I remember there being a lot of joy because I went to school just after independence. So I was in that new era when things were new, schools were opened up. Most public spaces were opened up for this kind of multiracial society that everyone was uh, dreaming of. Yeah, so things were wonderful for some time. It was a glorious time. There was just a joy in the air. It was like a boom town, wasn't it, Zimbabwe at that time? Yeah. And like loads of people were moving to Zimbabwe from all over It was Africa. wonderful. Of course, you know, we, we had some lessons waiting for us, some very difficult lessons. Yeah, but wonderful times, going to school. In fact, I should, I should tell you that um, my parents bought a house in the 70s in an all-white area. At the time, it wasn't unheard of those sort of legal stuff. And so my older brothers and sisters were the first black kids in the school that they went to. Lots of issues with that. Yeah, but yeah, lots of good times. And growing up, I, and I grew up in a very wacky but wonderful household. What was the wacky? The wackiness was just certain things that happened in our house didn't happen in other people's <laughs> homes. <laughs> you know, I, when I look at it now, it was a house full of joy as well. I want to use that word because, you know, hmm. my parents are very light-blooded people. It wasn't the parent-child situation because people have misinterpreted. What, you know, you hear people say, oh, African culture, African culture. And it's quite fascinating to me. I never talk of a universal culture. I, if you hear anything I say, I talk about my family specifically because I can't claim some universal culture. You know, you, know, you hear people saying, oh, my culture doesn't allow me to do this. Or in my culture, this thing is like this. And that's quite interesting to me. Because in, in my household, yeah, our parents weren't exceptionally strict as other parents were. Very playful parents, very loving. And we would sit and have conversations and our parents would ask us what we thought about things. Not a common uh, occurrence. We also had 
big gatherings at the house at least three times a year where our parents would invite musicians, poets, storytellers to the house and we have these all night sessions. Now, you know, people meet me now and say, Tawana, you're a poet, who has published you? And I just laughed to myself because, <laughs> come on, I've lived and breathed poetry for as long as I've been here. So it's crazy to me, those questions. Of course, I know what people mean, but yeah, it's, it's funny to me. Well, it's kind of like that's the mark of success here, isn't it? And, yeah. and it kind of ticks a box in, in someone's mind. Oh, right. So he's that kind of poet. There's a search for some kind of... A, Where do I place you? Yeah, yeah. categorization. Yeah. yeah. So poetry as living, how I speak to my elders and how I speak to my friends is not the same. That's poetry. I have to adjust the scales, whatever those are. The marriage ceremony for us, the traditional marriage ceremony is done in poetry. I did uh, when I was 16, you know, I, I played the role of the orator for my sister's wedding. So the, the family of the groom and the bride, they have these two orators and they're doing this kind of negotiation. So basically, you're the groom-to-be. You approach the... Um, on the day of the marriage, the opening gambit is the orator, who is called Munyai, from the bride's family, approaches the family, and they have to speak a certain kind of poetry of introducing themselves. Not only themselves, but the whole family. So they come and they say, they do chakrai kuno and all that ramrom or all these kind of things. So they speak whatever they speak. They sit down somewhere. There's a little stool for them. The family deliberates, and then they give them their response, and they take it back. <laughs> <laughs> on the day of the wedding yeah <laughs> but they you paid the for all the food day. already <laughs> take the whole day no it's fun it's fun i mean yeah. this part is done as a kind of a celebration of that ceremony you might say our child you know wishes to be within you know your family blah 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 and they recognize that and they say, oh, well, is this the same one who used to make noise at night, dropping our daughter off and waking us up during the night? Is this the same one? <laughs> and you, the orator, has to go back with those thoughts and kind of go, ah, how do I do this? <laughs> and then they pass with the other orator who then tells the family that, oh, the word from that side is... So you as the orator, you have to massage the language. Yeah, it has yeah, to be yeah. Witty, it has to be respectful. It has to be making things move on. It's a fun performance. It's an ancient tradition. I did that for my sister when I was 16. It's a very big responsibility. Yeah. yeah. But so when sounds... I've done things like that, yeah? When I've done things like that at 16, yeah. I was asked to do that. So the elders picked me for a reason. They saw something in me, obviously. Those things are much more defining for me than someone saying, how many books have you had published? I'm in the journey of publishing, of course, as part but it's not a defining thing. That's the world of publishing, yeah. And so how about your wedding? Was it like that? Did you have the negotiations? It was a little bit. We had three weddings in the end. We went to Bahrain and did all the traditional stuff. They're very beautiful, you know, there's the henna night and all that. I've got some really cool pictures of me in the kind of the big kind of thobe and stuff. The big that. wedding outfit, yeah. I look convincing, I look convincing. But I'm so sorry to say this. In Zimbabwe, my wedding was slightly spoiled because of those overzealous Christians I was talking about. You know, my, my elders gave me these different fabrics that you wear traditional ones. So my, my dad gave me this fabric. He said, you know, the elders have picked this one for you when I was much younger and he gave me that fabric. So I've always worn it as something that I feel it's got a good vibe for me. And I wore it here. I wore it in Bahrain. Guess what happened in Zimbabwe? They said, I can't wear it. You know, you know the most complicated thing. The people who do that to you, they really love you. <laughs> <laughs> but then what are you going to do? Are you going to spoil your wedding just for the sake of fighting your, your point? So I had to let that side of myself down in order for this other side to enjoy my wedding. So yeah, my own family are refusing for me to wear my, my cloth. 
Is it because they're the Christian belief? Yeah, because it's associated with our ancestors' lifestyle. Oh, so it's like paganistic or something. Yeah, it's it's been kind of played as oh, you know, this is the way. This is the proper way to do this it. The proper way. All <laughs> this stuff is is a bit demonic. I don't know of any other culture who looks at their ancestors as demonic. You know, I don't even think the missionaries wanted it to be that bad. <laughs> the missionaries okay. just convert some people into their faith. But the way Africans are taking Christianity just now is terrible. They can't accept people who are a certain way. You, you can see the wave across Africa of like, oh, anti-gay laws and all that. In which world, guys? In which world? You know, it's not their culture in the slightest. And so in Scotland, you got married. Was it a civic ceremony? Yeah, we had a celebration with a few close. It was a beautiful time. So Scotland, my cloth was fine. Bahrain, my cloth was fine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Where it actually comes from. That's Yeah, that's something. Hi all, do get booking if you'd like to see the show Tawona has co-written. There are limited numbers of tickets left with several shows booked out, so follow the link in the show notes to get your tickets while they are still available. I would love it if you could share, rate, review, recommend this podcast to the podcast listening people in your life. Thanks so much, and back to the conversation. And so what brought you to the UK then? What led you to make that move overseas, as they say? two things my uncle and ambitions <laughs> so what did your uncle do everyone has an uncle and auntie who's been overseas for a long oh time. yeah and they pave the way for you say come and they advise you, and, you know? <laughs> yeah true and so <clears throat> so you got your student student visa yeah and then what was the course you were coming to do so i qualified it's interesting uh, i qualified uh, in health studies i did that as the journey went on so th- this is the interesting thing an important journey happened for me while I was at uni. I was, first of all, observing this lack of mutuality I, I mentioned to you. I didn't think it was a reasonable situation that some of my peers at university were that unaware or uninformed or misinformed about the world. And so something was sort of just staring in me a little bit. I was living very close to the surface, but then I started really noticing that, no, there's another depth, you know, uh, yeah, so living close to the surface and you're, you know, having the old conversation and you find yourself kind of justifying yourself all the time. We have, we have pubs too. Is this then the place where you started your artistic journey? I mean, obviously you had your poetry already in you, but I guess, did you take it seriously as a profession um, before? I started the small steps of exploring what my place could be in the potential telling of a story that is necessary. You can't give someone a history lesson every time you're in a you're on a night out, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just have a few drinks. You meet someone at the bar, they say something. You can't sit there and give someone a lecture. The person's just having a good time. They think they're having a conversation with you. And then you take this front of like, oh no, let me correct you. No, it's that's not right. In all this, I had my notebooks. I've always had notebooks that okay. I spin things down, little ideas that come to me. So I've I've always been writing. The most beautiful people in my adventures have been people in the arts have really, that has felt like a family to me because creative people care about creative things. I'm not saying there's not elsewhere, of course there's goodness uh, elsewhere, but I think as a as being embraced, there's something about the arts that didn't really point those things so much. I mean, the things that are troublesome, you know, the racism, the all this. In the arts, it was a different question of what can we make together, that kind of thing. So I think that's how the journey kind of evolved. And I also had great mentors. I believe in mentors. 
I'll tell you a funny thing. So yeah, I started writing and then I thought, oh, let me, what do I do with this writing? I started sending it off and all that. And I went through the whole journey. Most writers will talk about when you get about the, the 131st no. <laughs> and there are many styles, right? So, some are very kind and some are just brutal. Yeah, your work was just not good enough for us. <laughs> Thanks. Lovely. So you were at the 145th no. Yeah. And then, you know, doing a gig once and my good friend now ellie and she said i think you should come to a school i'm working with i think you'd be good i love this right intuition the power of this intangible thing i was like yeah cool i'll come i'd never done a workshop before did you google what is a workshop this you no know, mentors i i had met by that point. oh you had mentors oh good 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 i had met rachel jury and anita government and they were wonderful so I, I ran to anita said anita i don't know what to do here anita and rachel I was like guys i don't know what to do i've been asked to do a workshop like it's okay breathe <laughs> yeah so yeah they're like it's cool to wonder you know it's you can try this try that yeah i walked into that room feeling like i've got this that journey is wonderful it's about relationships there's something important about you know the spirits you can get a, a group of very brilliant musicians together and they'll play something that is not yeah you've got to have people who don't whose ego isn't too big. Also, the alchemy has to be right. It's intangible sometimes. You can't really plan for it half the time, but when yeah. it works, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, I have always paid attention to that in my own life, but even in my creative work. I look at the relationships very important. That's the thing that I'm most concerned with. So how did you end up in Scotland then? Was that where your course away was? from London. <laughs> you wanted to get away from London. I should qualify this. I don't mean London as an entity. I mean my experience of London. When I arrived in London, I sort of, you know, looking around. I was with my uncle, you know, of course, most of the time. I started noticing that there's a very formed Zimbabwean community. This is no bad thing. I guess this is what happens in big cities. I felt like I'm not really experiencing where's the British way. Scotland was also, there's a story about Scotland. My dad traveled a lot. He was just fortunate. He got to travel the world a lot. Yeah, he came to Scotland in the early 90s or so. Yeah, he loved it here. So there was something about that. I felt like also I'm, I was tracking in his footsteps or something. So the move to Scotland was a hard move. It wasn't a head move, really. <laughs> but it's very tough, very tough being in Scotland because I don't want to underplay the shock of the accent in Glasgow. When your ears are sort of... <laughs> Not attuned. Of course, I arrived in December as well, winter times. The cold is indescribable. Face is frozen. You're like talking like you're drunk. <laughs> I, I mean, the, I was just not ready for how hard it was at first to hear the accent. When you're looking for directions and you're stopping people in the street and they're trying to be helpful and they, they tell you, you just go, I didn't get any of that. On the <laughs> second time of asking them, the third time feels a bit impolite. And you go... Ah, thank you. You've been very helpful. <laughs> Hang around a little bit and watch them. Find someone else. <laughs> How are you with the accent now? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. But then um, despite all of that, you stayed. And is that yeah. because you discovered your artistic self there? Yeah. I mean, two journeys were happening for me. The outward journey of finding, not that what I was doing before was not meaningful, but finding something more meaningful was starting to happen. Because, you know, the arts are the only space where you can be yourself completely, your whole self. Yeah. We need to talk about your show at the Edinburgh International Festival. So you are one of the writers on yes. a performance piece that's a promenade piece. This is a very exciting adventure. I like the word adventure because it allows possibilities of mischief. I'm so, you know, I'm so excited about this show. But it's, a, it's an immersive piece. 
four of us writing it. It's really wonderful to work with uh, Ben and Jude at Gridiron and our other writers, Nicola. What's the theme? What's the? Is there a story? Is there something that you can tell us about the show to give us a flavor of it? Uh, ben and Jude should not uh, kill me for this, but it's basically we're looking at what happens when people are forced together by a situation, how they relate. I think that's the most I can say. You you arrive there and everything begins, you know, you, you get taken into the world of the piece. And uh, yeah, it's full of laughs and cries, and, but it's a wonderful piece. I'm very excited. I will it's put in the show fun. notes when and how you can buy tickets. Yeah, I think that brings us to the end of the... <laughs> of the conversation thank you so much for your time and your yourself today thank you so much enjoy the rest of your day and um everyone go and see the show thank you so much christine bye many thanks to tawona sitole aka ganya matope this is the final episode of this special edinburgh international festival season i hope you've enjoyed getting to know some of the artists involved as much as i have And for those listeners who are going to the festival this year, have a wonderful time. We are planning to return with a new season soon. Do get in touch if you'd like to work with us on it in some shape or form. You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is an Ice and Fire Theatre production, specially commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival 2022. Have a lovely summer, and thanks, as ever, for listening.